The Biden administration's national cyber strategy, which came out last week, puts a lot of responsibility on industry. It has a hefty rulemaking and legislative agenda to support that, here with early reaction from federal contractors. Professional Services Council President and CEO David Perteau. And what is the reaction? What do you see in this whole strategy, especially from a contractor standpoint, David? Well, Tom, thanks so much for having me on. And, you know, the strategy is focused really on the entire nation, not the government contracting community. But as always, it will have major impacts on government contractors and major implications down the road. So it seems, first of all, there's a really key dynamic here, which is beginning to shift the responsibility for cybersecurity to what the strategy calls the most capable and best position actors. And that seems to mean, you know, the IT community, the cloud providers, the internet providers, et cetera. You know, for you and me as private citizens, this might have meaning, but I'm not sure it's going to shift any burdens away from contractors. In fact, it may complicate those burdens a little further. Well, in some ways, you know, cybersecurity has been, to make an analogy, as if the airline industry required everyone to have their own parachute before you could get on the plane because anything could happen. But the safety responsibility is not on the passenger. And I think there was a lot of that in here, which, again, is more of a consumer issue maybe than an industrial issue. But that's spreading. I liken it more than the airline to, you know, we've all got houses along a road here, right? And the threat is on the road, but we keep focusing on getting better and better padlocks for the house. We need to actually make a more secure highway here on which those houses sit. But for contractors, there's actually a couple of key things that come into play here. First, you know, there's five pillars, and those five pillars fall into the categories of, you know, defending critical infrastructure and disrupting threats, promoting data privacy, increasing the federal involvement in cyber research and development, which has some very potential valuable implications, and more international partnerships. The biggest one, of course, is critical infrastructure. For that, you really have to go back to the 16 critical infrastructure sectors that have already been defined, and they're pretty broad, but almost all of them impact government contractors in one way or the other. Right. So does this change requirements for contractors? I mean, let's talk about CMMC program at the Defense Department. That's not called out in that strategy, but that seems to be the kind of thing that they're prescribing more broadly. Well, this is the real question. You know, is there overlap? Is there connectivity with other ongoing parts of the federal government that would impact contractors uh, with this strategy? One place that it does mention that connectivity is in the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies Cybersecurity Framework, which is in the middle of being updated. They put out a draft a few months ago. They had a public workshop back in February. PSC, Stephanie Santacostro was attending that. And so we're looking for what that framework puts out there. It's not finalized yet. We're still operating under the old one. But you mentioned the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC. Uh, DOD already has an acquisition regulation issued. It's been suspended, put on hold. It's not taking effect yet. They're revising it. They've been revising it since 2021. It's now 2023. We haven't seen a revised rule yet. So you have questions of both how these things connect, and there's no indication of that connection in this strategy, and what the timetable is, Tom, because for two years, DOD has been working on this revised rule. We haven't seen it yet. Maybe we'll see it this summer, and maybe it'll be something we can comment on. We certainly look forward to that. Yeah, that's a good point, because the CNMC program has been, what, five, six, seven years or something in gestation now with a reset from when the Biden administration came in. That's only one rule. And there are 
several, I didn't count them, proposed rules that could come from this strategy. This as the White House or the OIRA office, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, already has a big backlog of rulemaking. And this is a 10-year strategy. It probably needs all of that to get the legislation and rulemaking done. Well, it may. And, you know, the key of any strategy is its implementation, not its documentation. And one of the big questions we'll be looking at is there's an implementation guide that they say is coming out later this summer. That's going to be awfully late to affect anything that agencies spend money on in this fiscal year, fiscal year 23, because, you know, by midsummer, agencies are sweeping up their unobligated funds to use for other purposes. We'll have an administration budget for FY24. Will any of it reflect this strategy? Uh, the strategy didn't come out. I mean, the budget's due out in a couple of days. I uh, doubt the strategy came out in time to affect anything in the budget. Maybe they knew it was coming, so they put it in there. That's one of the things we'll be looking for. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I wanted to ask you about the 24 budget. It's a month late, but that is the new on time, just as the new fiscal year is three months or six months after the official fiscal year. And except for more, what are contractors looking for? Well, as you know, the release is usually now what they call the skinny budget. That doesn't mean it's skinny in terms of dollars. It just means it's skinny in terms of content. We may get 100 pages or so. We won't get all the detailed justification material. But we'll be looking for a few key signals there. You mentioned more. Well, it's a question of more, but there's really a question of more for what, right? So will it be a higher number? Will that number actually incorporate the funds necessary to compensate for inflation? You know, we had this problem a couple of years ago, each year, the administration, and this is not unique to this administration. They try to downplay what they think inflation is going to be because it makes their numbers look better. But inflation is going to be what it's going to be. And it certainly looks pretty sticky right now, still at 6% or so per year. Will that be incorporated in there? Will their new priorities be folded into this sort of thing? And this includes some of the priorities, not only from that cybersecurity strategy, but overall modernization and updates. Does it have the focus on China that we need to have? Does it incorporate the guidance necessary for agencies to know what their priorities are across the board? Plus, of course, it's just the opening round of a long series of months and months of negotiations that tie back to the debt limit extension and whether there are going to be any spending cuts, et cetera. So we'll be looking for all of that. And tied to that could be shifts, continued shifts in small business strategy and requirements for contracting, because many officially small businesses that qualify for set-asides don't quite align with the DEI imperatives that seem to be covering everything these days. So are you expecting more shift there in the coming year? We are waiting. Over 100 executive orders have been signed out by this administration. President Biden's on a pace of eclipsing all previous records for executive orders. Many of them have a requirement to flow into contracts. A lot of those flowing into contracts, you mentioned the delays from the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, a lot of those have been held back even though we're in the third year of the administration now. We are expecting some kind of a clause requiring more reporting or more updates on diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility, as they now call it. Uh, but we haven't seen that yet, right? So it could well come into play. I think that the implementation of those through the FAR is one of the real questions. PSC, of course, constantly comments on these and points out the disconnects between what your supposed goals are and what your results are going to be. Not just impact on small businesses, but even on companies that don't want to do business with the government at all anymore, declining numbers across the board. Yeah. So uh, lots of uncertainty then, you might say, going deeper into fiscal 23 and really for fiscal 24. 
it's probably the number one challenge we have is that uncertainty. Not only what are we going to get in terms of funding and resources for FY24, what are the priorities going to be? Will there be spending cuts tied to the debt limit extension? When will we know what that is? All those uncertainties permeate our business. And one of the toughest things for any company is how to deal with uncertainty, especially with the federal government. And on top of that, of course, uncertainty tends to increase during election years. And by golly, 24 is already going to be one of those. You know, it it appears that we move the start date of election cycle earlier and earlier. I mean, Tom, we just finished an election a few months ago, right? And we're already high into the 2024 election cycle. What's that going to mean? Of course, it almost certainly is going to mean that we'll start the fiscal year with a continuing resolution. One of the concerns is, can we actually reach a full year appropriation at any point in this cycle? Or will we have continuing resolutions off and on? We call them multiple sequential short-term CRs, but ultimately it could end up being a full year continuing resolution or even longer. That's a level of uncertainty we haven't faced much in the past. Election year complicates it, obviously. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much for your input. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, 
And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? 
in 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.